Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touch-tone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Ayala, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop Treatment Update on Liver Cancer. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And because of that collaboration and your interest in the program today, we have over 367 participants on the call, and you come from all over the United States, from all different, uh, from large cities and small cities, um, and from rural and frontier communities, and we also have international participants from Canada, Spain, Venezuela, and now the Kingdom. So really, it's a bit of a global call as well, and it's wonderful to have all of you on the call today. And today's program is supported by Bayer Healthcare, and I really want to thank them for their support of today's program. Now, we have the best speakers on today's program. I want to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. James J. Harding. Dr. Harding is Assistant Attending, Gastrointestinal Oncology Service, Developmental Therapeutic Center, Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Harding is going to address an overview of liver cancer, current standard of care, novel treatment approaches, the role of clinical trials, controlling symptoms, side effects, discomfort, and pain, and communicating with the healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Harding. Thank you so much, Dr. Messner, and thank you to uh, Cancer Care for arranging this really important conference. Uh, thanks to the audience for your attention, uh, and I look forward to your questions as well. Uh, so with regard to an overview of liver cancer, I think it's important to just highlight the important function of the liver in digestion. Uh, as we are all aware, the liver is responsible for processing many of the nutrients for the body as well as clearing a majority of toxins, um, and it is a critical organ uh, uh, in that regard. Uh, when we think of liver cancer, most of the time, people, when they hear that, will think of cancer that has spread from somewhere else to the liver. That's the most common form of malignant cancer of the liver. That's where another organ like the colon has spread to the liver. But today we're going to be talking about primary liver cancer or hepatoma or hepatocellular carcinoma. This is when a cancer develops from a liver cell, uh, and this is very important that it is treated very differently than other cancer types. When we look globally at primary liver cancer, it's a very common cause of cancer in the world. Uh, they're estimated about six, uh, 750 to 800,000 cases per year. When we look specifically to the United States, we see between 35 and 45,000 cases per year in the United States. And it's one of the few cancers in the United States where we're seeing an increasing incidence, meaning that there are more cases per year. The cause of liver cancer is quite complex. Uh, in the majority of patients, liver cancer occurs in the background of cirrhosis, which is scarring of the liver, usually from another illness like viral hepatitis B and C, alcoholic hepatitis, or what's now called fatty liver disease. Um, and several other smaller um, uh, or rarer illnesses. Uh, sometimes primary liver cancer will develop in the setting of no prior liver disease, but that's relatively rare, maybe 4 to 5% of patients. Um, primary liver cancer uh, is uh, treated largely based on its stage. Um, the staging system for primary liver cancer is actually complex and really depends on where you are in the world. For example, in the United States, we have the AJCC staging system or the American Joint Commission on Cancer Staging System. In Spain, they have a specific Barcelona liver clinic, um, and there are many others throughout the world. But, but briefly breaking it down, I think in the most simplistic terms, you either have early stage disease 
disease, which is liver limited. You have a locally advanced a liver cancer, which is liver limited, but may involve larger structures uh, like the veins going into the liver or metastatic liver cancer, which this is where uh, the cancer has spread from the liver to another organ, uh, usually lymph nodes, bone, lung, or in the cavity of the abdomen. So for patients that have liver-limited liver cancer, uh, if it is a small number of tumors or a very uh, small tumor in general, there are two approaches, possibly three, that can be entertained. Uh, that would be surgery to remove part of the liver, uh, to um, uh, take out the part of the liver with the cancer. A transplant, uh, which is where the liver is replaced with a donor organ from another uh, patient. Um, uh, and these two therapies, both surgery and transplantation, are generally viewed as curative procedures for liver cancer. And it's very important for a patient that has been given the diagnosis of uh, an early stage liver cancer to have what's called a multidisciplinary review, have their case reviewed by a surgeon, sometimes a transplant surgeon, a medical oncologist, uh, and other professionals to determine if they're a candidate for either of those two approaches. For patients with disease that can't be removed with surgery or a transplant is not feasible, the major treatment is with interventional radiology and what is called embolization. This is where uh, a, a, an interventional radiologist will use uh, non-invasive procedures to feed catheters up to the, the vessels that supply the tumor. Uh, liver cancer is very vascular, and by blocking the blood supply with beads, beads that have chemotherapy, beads that have radiation, or beads that are just uh, glass beads, you can kill the blood supply to the tumor and often kill those tumors. Uh, this procedure, or these procedures called embolization, um, are usually uh, ways to control the disease for as long as possible, and in some patients may be curative in that it can really um, reduce the burden of the disease to allow for surgery and or transplantation in the future. Uh, for those patients that are not candidates for regional therapy like embolization, surgery or transplantation, or for those patients that have disease that has left the liver, often we, we provide something called systemic therapy. That's therapy that goes throughout the whole body with the design of shrinking or controlling liver cancer no matter where it might be. Uh, and this year uh, and the last year has been a fairly active year in that there have been two regulatory approvals by the FDA um, uh, for liver cancer. Um, about 10 years ago, the first uh, treatment for metastatic liver cancer was developed and approved by the FDA. That is a pill-based therapy called serafinib or Nexavar. This is a pill-based therapy that interferes with proteins that are very important for liver cancer growth, and it's been shown to slow the growth of liver cancer and allow people to live longer with their cancer. Uh, there were many clinical trials in the last decade, and none of them had really moved the bar forward or allowed for another uh, treatment after serafinib didn't work or, or if it was something that might be too toxic for patients to handle. However, recently when serafinib stops working, a drug called regorafenib has been approved. Uh, this is similar in its mechanism of action to serafinib uh, and has also been shown to allow patients to live longer and control the disease longer. Uh, more recently, uh, in September of this year, a different drug was approved for the treatment of liver cancer, and that is called nivolumab. This is a drug that goes in the vein uh, and is designed actually to activate the immune system against cancer. Uh, and in so doing that, it may control or shrink cancers. Unlike regorafenib or serafinib, we do not know if this allows people to live longer, but we do know that a subset of patients will have very good disease control for a long period of time. Uh, finally, there is another drug that has been recently tested in a clinical trial called levatinib, and that seems to have some activity, but that is not FDA-approved as of yet. Um, and, and this really... Um, 
um, indicates the, the treatment approaches for patients at all stages of liver cancer. Uh, in patients with spread liver cancer, sometimes radiotherapy or radiation therapy may be used to control aspects of the disease. Um, and um, uh, for those patients whose liver function um, has declined or may be too sick for any of the said therapies, we do have many therapies that are designed for symptom management, and I will discuss those later. So moving on to novel treatment approaches and the role of clinical trials. Um, clinical trials are extremely important in the treatment of all cancers, but specifically liver cancers. Uh, clinical trials are investigations where doctors and scientists are trying to understand new therapies for cancer. Often they are considered phase one, two, and three. A phase one clinical study is a study where we're looking to understand how safe a particular drug is and how is it the best way to give that drug. In order for a drug to be evaluated in liver cancer in a phase one study, uh, you have to demonstrate in what's called preclinical models in mice and other um, systems that that therapy is safe and effective for liver cancer. Once that's been done, the FDA and uh, local institutional review boards will allow those treatments to be investigated in humans for the first time. Uh, during this time, their patients are seen a great deal uh, and, and um, they're offered therapies that they otherwise would not have had. If during a phase one a drug is determined to be safe and effective, it may move into phase two where we're looking to understand a little better how active is that drug. And then finally, if we think a drug is quite effective, we'll compare it to the standard of care, uh, which is the, the standard drug that is currently used. So as an example, I had mentioned for patients with advanced liver cancer, the frontline approach is serafinib. A phase three study would take serafinib versus another drug uh, that is believed to be at least equivalent and possibly better than serafinib. <coughs> Pardon. And if that investigational drug was uh, superior, that would then uh, replace serafinib as a standard of care. Uh, the um, uh, phase three study is where uh, there is randomization. Not everyone will get um, uh, serafinib or the new drug. And so this moves us into novel treatment approaches for liver cancer. I think the uh, major uh, approaches in liver cancer at the moment involve both targeted therapeutics as well as immunotherapies. Targeted therapeutics are looking to find specific genes that are abnormal in primary liver cancer and then use our understanding of those genes which cause the cancer to grow to block um, uh, those, those genes and proteins to lead to the liver cancer to stop growing or regress. Um, an area of active interest is specifically a genetic alteration right now called FGF19 and FGFR4 uh, alterations. There's been evidence that this alteration, which occurs in about you know, 5% of patients with liver cancer, may be targetable, um, and there are uh, uh, clinical studies that are investigating that now. There are a number of other genetic alterations in liver cancer uh, that are being investigated investigated on clinical trials uh, that involve uh, 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 genes like the Wnt beta catenin system or TERT. But these are all in early stage phase one and phase two. Another novel treatment approach I think that has been moving across all of cancers is immunotherapy. Is there a way we can unlock the immune system uh, to, to treat liver cancers and to uh, have the body try to slow the growth of liver cancers? cancers. Uh, the first example of this is this drug nivolumab, which is an anti-PD-1 antibody. Um, but there are several others that are in development and other combinations of immune therapy designed specifically to do this. 
Um, in addition, uh, in other experimental approaches, we're looking at designing specific T cells to help fight liver cancer, or taking uh, drugs like nivolumab and serafinib or regorafenib and looking at them at earlier stages of the disease in an effort to pair them with surgeries, transplant, uh, or embolization uh, to hopefully increase activity uh, and improve the amount of patients that may or may not be cured from their liver cancer. Um, moving towards um, uh, symptom control and side effects, um, uh, certainly uh, liver cancer itself without any treatment may have many symptoms. Uh, patients may often feel tired. They may lose the um, drive to want to eat. Uh, some patients can experience swelling in the belly um, uh, uh, or swelling in their legs. And that's why no matter whether you're on treatment or not, uh, treatment uh, for your primary liver cancer, it's very important to have a gastroenterologist as well as a medical oncologist to help manage those symptoms. Uh, there are many things that can be done to help improve appetite, uh, both medically. Um, uh, there are ways to reduce fluid on someone's body by draining the fluid out or by giving medications called diuretics, as well as altering um, uh, uh, even the diet to help improve um, uh, uh, fluid retention, which is a common complaint of patients with primary liver cancer. Um, when patients are on active treatment, um, there can be a whole range of side effects. Uh, so for patients that are undergoing surgery or um, a transplantation, uh, there are a number of post-operative complaints and pain that can be managed and should be managed aggressively by the surgeon. Uh, and thus, it's very important for close uh, communication with the patient and the surgeon during that time. For patients on treatment with embolization, uh, this is also a regional therapy, as I said, that is, is done at one time point or several time points over the course of a year. There can be symptoms associated with this uh, that can be managed. A common symptom of embolization might be what call, is called post-embolization syndrome. Because you're killing so much of the tumor, patients may feel nauseated, they may vomit, they may have fever, chills, and may have pain. And we have anti-nausea medicines. Uh, and medicines for fever and for pain that can be applied during that time so that quality of life can be maintained. When patients are going undergoing systemic therapy uh, with drugs like serafinib, regorafinib, or nivolumab, there are a whole wide range of symptoms that can occur. Um, and, and we know from other disease systems that managing those symptoms is very important for patients to do the best that they can in fighting their disease, have the best quality of life, and live longer with their disease. So we're very attuned to symptoms and symptom management. Um, for uh, drugs like regorafenib and serafinib, a common side effect is irritation of the skin and reddening of the hands and feet. Um, and, and, and that can be managed actually quite well with um, certain modifications to activity like avoidance of sun and using emollients uh, and creams to keep the skin soft can also be managed with a wide range of um, uh, steroid creams and others. Uh, for the newer therapy, immunotherapy, there is a risk that, uh, that this drug can activate the immune system against patients' own normal body systems, like, for example, the skin or the lungs or the colon. And in those cases, we need to suppress the immune system with steroids, and therefore it's very important if someone is getting treated with an immunotherapy for liver cancer to be in close contact with their medical oncologist because we already know that the more vigilant you are with symptoms, uh, the, the quick, more quickly they can be managed uh, and um, the, the better uh, outcome in general. Whenever somebody is dealing with cancer, discomfort and pain can occur, and we do want to manage that very aggressively. Uh, and so this moves me to 
um, I think, the management of quality of life concerns. When you're dealing with a cancer, uh, specifically liver cancer, uh, there are a number of different quality of life concerns. Certainly, we just discussed symptoms and side effects as well as um, discomfort and pain. Uh, however, um, uh, yeah, there are other t- side effects and, and issues with quality of life. For example, some treatments may require frequent visits uh, to which there may be out-of-pocket costs. Uh, some uh, treatments, if on clinical trial, may require a great deal of time at the center. Um, some treatments just have side effects. And even though doctors do ask about quality of life, we're notoriously sometimes bad at acknowledging them. And we want to hear from our patients how they're doing. It's very important when whenever one is dealing with a cancer to try to maintain quality of life at a level that is appropriate for a given patient. You know, if somebody is working full-time and is diagnosed with metastatic liver cancer, we want to be able to maintain their ability to work full-time and manage all of those specific um, uh, um, uh, symptoms uh, and and concerns. Um, For patients, for example, that have very severe symptoms, we also have the ability to help with uh, by referring to a palliative care physician. Uh, in the past, palliative care has been associated with what is called hospice or end-of-life care, but the, the way medical oncology and oncology in general has evolved is that we want to start managing symptoms from day one related to cancer, even if that cancer has uh, is, is been cured or cured by a surgery, someone may still have symptoms that palliative care can help alleviate with pain control, nerve blocks, uh, and other modalities. So this is something in my practice that I use a lot across the spectrum of, of patients no matter where they are in their disease course. Other things that are important, I think, will be discussed uh, by um, uh, uh, my colleagues um, are uh, also nutrition and nutritional concerns. And and finally, uh, I think psychosocial support and, and psychiatric management, the latter being a very important part of any cancer management. Sometimes these diseases are, are quite scary and um, uh, we really need to align patients so that they have as much support in battling their cancer. Uh, So I think at this point I will uh, end my comments and I look forward to questions later and I will turn back to Drs. Messner uh, and Diana Bearden. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Harding. That was really an outstanding tour de force in covering all of these topics on liver cancer. I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. And our next speaker is uh, Diana Bearden. Diana is a dietitian with the Manager Clinic. And Ms. Bearden is going to address nutritional concerns and tips. And it's my pleasure now to turn the program over to Ms. Bearden. Thank you, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation addressing the nutritional concerns with liver cancer. My goal is to discuss tips for managing side effects that can impact your nutrition. Side effects from liver cancer may affect eating um, uh, in a number of different ways, Um, but eating well during your treatment can provide you you the energy to do the things you enjoy, maintaining a a quality of life, as well as maintaining your weight. Um, They know that patients who maintain good nutrition tend to tolerate treatments better and have fewer um, breaks from treatment, and they also have um, a better recovery from side effects. A few of the side effects, we've heard a little bit this morning um, from Dr. Harding that that we can um, possibly experience with liver cancer include nausea, vomiting, a decrease in appetite, possibly changes in taste, diarrhea, constipation, fatigue, and weight changes. These are all common challenges, um, but they also experience potential barriers to meeting your nutritional goals. So throughout your care, changes might be made to your diet um, in response to some of the side effects you're experiencing. So constant communication with your healthcare team related to the challenges that you're experiencing is 
imperative in addressing them quickly and um, maintaining the best quality of life as possible during this time. So um, I'm just going to briefly discuss um, some ways you can manage some of the side effects that can um, be common with liver cancer. The first is um, nausea, vomiting, and poor appetite. Now, with this, I want you to know that the source of the side effect is very important to be aware of. Um, Dr. Harding brought up um, a couple of things earlier, one of them being that sometimes there's a distended abdomen, sometimes there's fluid that's um, an issue. And so knowing what the source is will absolutely be the best way in knowing how to address it. But in general, um, some ways to address the nausea, vomiting, and poor appetite is take medications as they're directed. I know that sounds very basic, but oftentimes um, during your course of treatment, you're taking a lot of medications and that can feel overwhelming. Um, and you might be feeling much better at one point and think you don't need um, maybe the anti-nausea medication, but please take it as prescribed. Um, the treatments that you're provided um, have been closely examined and the side effects related to those as well. And so the doctors, um, as they prescribe you medications, are comfortable with saying this is something that could potentially happen or this will happen, so um, please take medication as prescribed. But focusing on small frequent meals can be very helpful. And the meals consisting of high-calorie, high-protein foods, um, eliminating stress during meal times. I know that sounds kind of a strange thing to say, but when you're going through treatment, often you're you're back to back with different appointments and sometimes for quite some time maybe there's a wait in the doctor's office or um things just haven't moved as they had been scheduled at the same rate so trying to have for some time for you to sit and eat by packaging meals to take with you is very helpful um, walking, exercising um, is also really um, kind of a benign way to help talking with your doctor on what type of activity is appropriate for you. It can help with digestion. Um, it can help with um, an appetite. Taste changes are another possible side effect that could be faced during the treatment. Number one, keeping good oral hygiene is important. Um, sometimes medications that you take may affect your um, taste. It may affect um, how you tolerate foods. And so keeping good oral hygiene is very important. Um, drinking enough water is part of that as well. Um, but the changes in taste can sometimes come in different forms. So it can be um, maybe things taste salty, maybe they taste too sweet. And so talking with your dietitian, they can help you with how to balance that with the foods that you're eating. Um, a change in bowel function is also something that might be an issue. Um, again, the source of the issue is what you want to talk with your team about, and so the response is going to be very individualized. Um, constipation can be caused by many different things, um, potentially pain medication, a decrease in activity, a side effect from the medication, possibly the disease process itself. Um, maybe it's a fluid issue. Maybe there's not enough fluid in the diet. Um, we can find ways to adjust fluid and the fiber um, in our diet to sometimes help with addressing some of these side effects. Um, again, activity may help with the natural progression of our digestive tract. But again, talk with your healthcare team and they'll help with making sure that your needs are addressed appropriately. I'd just like to mention that hydration is oftentimes something that's overlooked. And we need to have water in our diet to stay hydrated. Um, but water comes in different foods and in different fluids. So talking with your team about what's appropriate um, for you for how much fluid each day is, um, is part of your team and a part of your care team's plan for you. Um, Dehydration can actually also increase some of the side effects you could be experiencing, like nausea, fatigue, um, cloudy head, sometimes feeling dizzy. So um, knowing what your goal is for that each day is 
part of your plan is important. If you find that you're decreasing in your intake or that your weight is changing, keeping a daily record of what you're eating can be very helpful for your team in helping target where, to where you can improve and how to help um, best serve you. As a final point, remember that your main goal is to maintain your weight and lean muscle mass during your treatment course. Um, working with your healthcare team is essential in having the success with your treatment. And remember, your dietitian is part of that team, and so please connect with them in helping meet your nutritional goals. Thank you so much for letting me be part of today's presentation. Carolyn, I'm going to hand it back over to you. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Diana. That was outstanding and wonderful. Thank you. And our next speaker is uh, Ms. Elizabeth Ezra. Ms. Ezra Shorker. She is Program Coordinator here at Cancer Care. And Ms. Ezra is going to go over with you Cancer Care's free psychosocial programs and services and the role of support groups. It's my pleasure now to turn the program over to Ms. Ezra. Thank you, Carolyn. I am honored to be part of this important call today. I am an oncology social worker, and I work with many people with liver cancer and their loved ones. I would like to begin by speaking about the importance of creating a support network when you're diagnosed with cancer and how cancer care can be part of that network. There are many ways we can help. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization that provides free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer. Cancer Care's programs, including individual counseling support groups, either over the telephone or online, education about resources and how to navigate the healthcare system, practical help and some limited financial assistance, as well as just speaking to a licensed master's level on oncology social worker are completely free of charge. Oncology social workers on trains and how a diagnosis of cancer affects a person and his or her family and friends. They are also trained to help cancer patients and their families tackle the problems that accompany the disease, such as financial demands, physical changes, social adjustment, and the psychological impact and care. Adjusting to and dealing with the diagnosis is an important part of the healing process. Cancer affects the whole person and the entire family. Asking for help by joining a support group or by contacting a social worker for counseling is a sign of strength. Joining a support group is a way to connect with others who are going through a similar situation or have similar problems. These connections can lessen the isolation that many people with cancer experience. Support groups are a safe place where you can voice your concerns and your fears. Feeling well emotionally can help you better deal with the diagnosis and the treatment. At this time, Cancer Care offers a general patient group online and also uh, via the telephone. Cancer Care can also provide some financial assistance for transportation expenses. If you are interested in any of Cancer Care services, please call our HOPE line at 1-800-813-4673 or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. Our website is very comprehensive and you can find a lot of additional information on your cancer diagnosis and the, and the treatment you need to, to receive. As we have learned from today's program, there's a lot of information to digest and get your arms around. Our social workers can help you understand what it means for you and your family. Your social worker can help you prioritize and actually rehearse the questions that you might want to ask to get the answers and the information that you need. Please remember that you are not alone. Cancer care services are there to help you. Thank you for your attention and the opportunity to talk to you today. Carolyn, I'm sending it back over to you. Oh, thank you so much, Liz. That was wonderful and uh, very informative about all the resources that are available. And now we do have time for questions. We have actually um, we have full amount of time for questions, so um, I'm going to ask 
uh, that we'd bring all of our speakers on board, if Ayala would bring all of our speakers on board, and um, we will let the questions begin. And Ayala will explain to you how to queue up and ask questions. Ayala? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star, then one. And we have our first question from one of our participants, Dr. Harding. It's an online question, um, so I'm going to read the question. Um, does... Um, does what Dr. Harding is discussing have any application to colon geosarcoma? I have this disease and being treated at Memorial Sloan Kettering, but with chemotherapy that doesn't include any of the drugs Dr. Harding has mentioned. Great. So, um, yeah, I think that's a it's a good point of clarity. So, we're today speaking about primary liver cancer, and as you recall, I had mentioned at the beginning, some patients have tumors from other organs that spread to the liver or metastasize to the liver, and some patients have primary tumors of the liver. Hepatocellular carcinoma is a primary tumor of the liver, but also in the liver are the bile ducts. These are um, structures that drain bile from the liver cells and deposit that into um, uh, the digestive system. Now, biliary cancers develop from those bile duct cells and also causes a tumor in the liver, but they're not liver cells. Uh, they're bile duct cells, and that's called intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma. Uh, we did not talk about that. I did not mention that, so I'm really grateful for this question. Intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma is treated very differently than primary liver cancer. Often, um, intrahepatic uh, um, uh, uh, cholangiocarcinoma, when not able to be removed with surgery, is treated with chemotherapies, gemcitabine and cisplatin being one of them, but there are other chemotherapies. Also, the clinical trial space for primary bile duct cancer or cholangiocarcinoma is very different. So, <laughs> if one has a diagnosis of cholangiocarcinoma, that is treated entirely different than primary liver cancer. I hope that answers the question. Oh, that's excellent. Thank you so much. Um, we have some more online questions coming in, and so I'm going to read you the next one. Um, so this question, again, is for Dr. Harding. What can I do to stay as healthy as possible during my treatment period? Well, I think that's a great that's a great question. Um, for patients with primary liver cancer or hepatoma or hepatocellular carcinoma, often it occurs in in the space of cirrhosis where the liver may be damaged from a prior cause. So one thing that I tell all of my patients is to avoid anything that may be toxic to the liver, something like Tylenol, um, maybe one alcohol might be another, uh, and and you can have that specific discussion with your healthcare provider about what things are safe to take when when there is a liver cancer and perhaps associated liver um, dysfunction from cirrhosis. Another thing I think that is very important to maintain health and quality of life is to be in good contact with the provider, the medical oncologist, or the surgeon about side effects. We, we know from other disease systems that um, managing the side effects of cancer and its treatment is very very important, and, 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 and that, that is yet another thing that one can do. I, I think finally, um, for patients with primary liver cancer, is really to, to have, uh, if they have cirrhosis, to have a gastroenterologist or a hepatologist that helps manage the case with a medical oncologist uh, to make sure that liver health uh, you know, stays at its maximal level for as long as possible. Um, um, other than that, uh, I think having a healthy diet as dictated by your physician um, and trying to maintain a healthy level of activity is important um, uh, throughout the treatment. Excellent. And um, we have another question coming in from one of our online participants. Um, so this is a question um, actually about um, about diet. So this would be a question um, for both Ms. Baird and, and also for Dr. Harding. Um, 
um, there is talk about staying away from certain foods can prevent cancer. Is there truth to this? So actually, I'm going to ask Dr. Harding if you could just address this generally, and then I'm going to ask Ms. Bearden also. Sure. Um, so, um, you know, I, I think that's a very interesting question in general and probably moves a little outside of the scope of primary liver cancer. Um, and I'll use an example of colorectal cancer. This is a, a, a cancer of the colon. We know from studies that um, a healthy diet, uh, like a Mediterranean-type diet or what's called a DASH diet, uh, which is recommended by a heart-healthy diet, may help uh, prevent cancers in, in those people that are cured of prior colorectal cancer. Um, uh, and, and I think that's an important observation. Probably our nutritional status before one even gets cancer is very important. Uh, trying to um, have a balanced um, uh, diet and maintain an ideal body weight uh, probably helps prevent developing a, a range of cancers, and we, we just don't have all of the data for that. Obesity has been associated with a risk factor for a number of cancers, including liver cancer. Once you develop a primary liver cancer, uh, it's not clear if there is a specific dietary modification that can be applied to start to shrink that cancer and or um, stabilize that cancer. And, and we, 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 we think that probably um, uh, you know, modifying the diet at that time to treat cancer may not be as helpful. However, having a healthy diet while one is undergoing chemotherapy, undergoing surgery is always recommended, and perhaps the dietitian uh, can speak more to that. And Diana, do you want to comment on that as well? Yes, absolutely. Um, so, you know, an, another resource for um, evidence-based um, support around diet is the American Institute for Cancer Research. Um, and what we know, it, it's just what Dr. Harding was saying, is that there's really there's a... A complete, you know, body. You know, every we're not just made up of just food. So there's a whole bunch of different factors that go into our risk for cancer. Um, and so what we know about food is they that it contains and it's it's very functional in um, reducing our risks of. Um, different processes such as other comorbidities and including cancer. Um, is that the case for everybody? If you eat a perfect diet that you won't get cancer, that, that's not true. But what we do know is that there are some innate qualities from food and a plant-based diet also known as a Mediterranean diet, et cetera, um, have the, the utmost amount of qualities um, for those components that can help reduce our risk of disease, then those components include antioxidants, phytochemicals. Um, you want the whole food. We want to do less juicing and blending and eat actual food. The least processed, the better, because the nourishing components are in its whole form. And that's one of the things that becomes very confusing for patients because you walk through the grocery store and every Every box has a label um, saying something. And the encouragement actually is to eat the perimeter of the grocery store as close to harvest as we can and as least processed as possible. And that way you're getting the highest quality of nutritional bioavailability that the food can provide for you. Um, I would will also say that supplements and, and those sorts of things are discouraged um, as a means to prevent cancer. Um, we know that, and especially here as we're talking about the liver, the liver is a very important part of our um, our body's function. And before you're taking any supplements, herbals, vitamins, even though it seems benign to you, discussing that with your team is imperative. So um, the answer is there are qualities in foods that can help reduce our risk of disease. Will food alone keep us from developing cancer? No. Um, so I hope that's helpful. Oh, thanks so much. Thanks. Um, and we have another question, one of our online participants. Um, and uh, this question is for Dr. Harding. Um, so one question. Let me see if I can. Um, I have primary hepatocellular carcinoma not related to previous liver disease. 
um, it has now spread to my peritoneum. Um, the liver tumor was resected, and most recently the liver was clear, but metastasis was found in peritoneal tissue. You mentioned that liver transplant can often be a cure. Can a transplant be performed during a metastatic stage? And while yeah. other treatments are occurring, how easy is it to find a match for transplant? So, long question. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. Liver transplantation um, is used in a very specific setting for primary liver cancer. And I think to put it into context, there are about 45,000 cases per year of primary liver cancer, but only about 1,000 to 1,500 patients are actually transplanted with primary liver cancer. And the reason for the low number is largely because in order to have a liver transplant where it is most effective and really only effective is in those patients with one tumor of the liver less than five centimeters or three tumors less than three centimeters. Um, there are some programs that, that do, you know, try to transplant patients with a little bit larger burden of disease, but it needs to be liver-limited disease and not involving a large vessel. So for patients that have had the cancer spread outside of the liver, for patients that have the tumor in the large vessel or a large burden of disease, um, the transplantation will not be effective at doing what, what people want, which is to try to cure the disease. I often think that, uh, you know, when I talk about transplantation, I'm not a transplanter, I'm not from a transplant center, uh, but I see it more as a treatment for cirrhosis. And when you have cirrhosis, when you see like one little liver cancer, that is the time to, you know, be listed for a, a primary um, a liver transplant, um, or if there's a small amount of liver cancer, that's when one would, would seek a transplant center. Um, obviously, there are many transplant centers of excellence, and if there is a consideration, your primary medical oncologist as well as surgeon, uh, you know, usually has a contact at one of those sites and, and, and can let you know. But for patients that have the disease spread outside of the liver, the transplant uh, will, will not 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 be effective in that way. Um, I hope that answers the question. Oh, excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, our next question um, asks about, um, this is the next one of our online participants, so Dr. Harding. Um, so my doctor said I am not a candidate for therapies and my only option is surgery to remove the tumors on my liver. Should I get a second opinion? So I think the whole concept of second opinion, if you could also comment on that, Dr. Harding as well. Sure. So, um, you know, I, I think um, um, in general, um, you know, it's always useful to to get a second opinion uh, when, uh, for example, if I were a patient and I, I felt uncertain about a particular recommendation, specifically if it were regarding a surgery, a transplant, or even some of these chemotherapies or therapies that I'm discussing, uh, a, a second opinion I think is always meaningful. You know, I I work at a, a center where I see many people for second opinions and or patients that see me want a second opinion. And and I think one thing that I always encourage my patients to do is if they can ask me about it is, hey, doc, is there, should I get a second opinion? Do you know anyone that can give a second opinion? I find physicians, especially myself, you know, are not bothered by that. And if it, if it helps give a patient clarity on the best course of action, sometimes it is warranted. Um, for primary liver cancers, if a surgery is required or transplantation is required, it may be useful to go to a center that's high volume in that regard, uh, and that can be found on, um, you know, uh, on, on various websites or, or searching, uh, you know, on, on, on um, the AACR website or other um, uh, cancer-specific websites. Um, but I think a second opinion is always useful for patients. Um, I think that it, it helps provide clarity on what to do. And I don't think doctors are concerned about that either. I mean, if, if, you know, if you were to say to your surgeon, I'd like a second opinion, do you recommend someone? I, I don't feel that the, anyone I've ever dealt with that has had a difficulty with doing that. I hope that helps. 
Excellent. Thank you. And another question for Dr. Harding from one of our online participants. So about travel, I've recently traveled to the rainforest areas of Central Africa and had schistosomiasis. Should um, I get my liver checked frequently? So if you could just answer that in a general way. And I, I guess explain to the audience what um, this particular... Okay. Um, yeah, so... Um, uh, so so when we talked about you know primary liver cancers, I mentioned risk factors like viral hepatitis B and C, alcoholism. Um, I talked about fatty liver disease. There are a variety of other smaller, um, uh, 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 you know, a, a variety of other reasons one might develop primary liver cancer. Schistosomiasis um, is a parasite um, that can be found in various parts of the world. Uh, and one of the forms of schistomiasis is called liver fluke. Um, uh, the parasite actually grows in the bile ducts, and it's like a little worm that can grow in the bile ducts. There's medical treatment available for schistosomiasis, largely by infectious disease specialists. Um, uh, there is some suggestion that schistosomiasis liver fluke may be a risk factor for biliary cancer. Uh, and um, though I am not aware of a specific um, screening guideline in that population. Uh, and so what I would specifically do for that is probably speak with my infectious disease doctor that's treated the schistosomiasis to ask them the specific recommendation there if one does exist. I have to say that I've um, never actually treated a patient with schistosomiasis-related uh, 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 cancer, but there is a, a, a suggestion that there could be an increased risk. That doesn't mean that it's uniform, uh, and it's a small number of patients that get that each year. So I think the best way to allay any concern would be to speak with your primary doctor, uh, a, a primary infectious disease doctor, about that. Thank you. We're really having some really outstanding questions here and really complicated questions as well. So thank you, Dr. Harding, to have you on the call. And uh, there's another question, and this one I know you've addressed, but I, perhaps because the question's here from one of our online participants, I could review it again. So is cirrhosis of the liver the same thing as liver cancer? If you could just um, just yeah so no, those are not the same thing, so cirrhosis is really scarring of the liver, and so there are a number of things, a number of diseases that can scar the liver um, so the liver, as you know, as I said, is an important digestive organ, uh, and you know uh, if you develop certain diseases like viral hepatitis. If someone has had an experience with alcohol or alcohol abuse, um, um, it's, it, more and more we're seeing what's called fatty liver disease. Um, uh, these things can lead to scarring of the liver. They initially inflame the liver, and over time, um, they can scar the liver, and, and the liver becomes more fibrotic or hard, um, and it doesn't work as well. So cirrhosis is its own medical problem that needs a gastroenterologist or a hepatologist to follow that and treat the various complications of cirrhosis uh, and diagnose why one has cirrhosis. A complication of cirrhosis is primary liver cancer or hepatoma. So somebody, um, so there may be many people that have cirrhosis, but a small portion or a portion of them will develop primary liver cancer. Sometimes primary liver cancer develops in, in the setting of no cirrhosis. So there are two separate things. Cirrhosis usually, or cirrhosis can lead to liver cancer, uh, uh, though you don't need to have cirrhosis to get liver cancer. I hope that clarifies. Thank you very much. That's really important. And for people to leave the call without clarification, it's really important. Um, so I'm hoping you're all taking these takeaway points. It's really important here. Um, and then another question from one of our online participants. Um, my doctor said that I have a secondary liver cancer. Is the treatment plan for the, the same for secondary uh, liver cancer as for primary liver cancer? And if you could clarify that, Dr. Harding. Um, so I think that's an interesting question. Um, I, I I would personally need to have a little more understanding of what they meant by secondary liver cancer. 
Um, when I hear that term, usually I think of perhaps um, a, a cancer that spreads some, from somewhere else to the liver uh, versus a primary liver cancer that's developed from the liver cells. Um, and I think there it's hard for me to answer that without actually knowing specifically the details of the medical case. But what I will say is hepatocellular carcinoma, hepatoma, or primary liver cancer, it's a very clear diagnosis uh, in the, like a medical oncology and gastroenterology community. And so um, I would imagine that if one had that, they would be getting one of the various treatments that I've said in some degree. Um, uh, and if you're, if this call, by the way, I mean, it's a difficult um, uh, to convey all this information in this time. If somebody is listening there, you know, hearing something like, you know, they didn't, doesn't make sense to what their doctor says, I would just review it because sometimes uh, there can be some miscommunications in that regard. I hope that's helpful. Oh, thank you very much. Um, and I guess our last question from one of our online participants is, um, so um, is it important for people with liver cancer to be vaccinated for hepatitis A and hepatitis B? Um, I think that's a good question. Um, I, I think for patients that have cirrhosis, primary liver cirrhosis, um, uh, uh, so cirrhosis, I'm sorry, of the liver, uh, I would, I typically do vaccinate um, for hepatitis A or B if they, they don't have those already, because what's the sense of getting that illness uh, if you've already had some liver injury and it would be safe to vaccinate for? Uh, whether one has, hep if, if somebody has hepatoma or primary liver cancer, um, um, you know, I don't think either of those vaccines is unreasonable, uh, and, and I would go with what the primary doctor does recommend. Thank you very much. I want to thank Dr. Harding, uh, outstanding, really, presentation, um, and I want to thank all of you who asked such great questions. I also want to thank uh, Ms. Bearden and Ms. Ezra as well. Um, and um, as we're wrapping up the call, I do want to say a few things about, I know we've told all of you that if you have any questions that you didn't have answered, where to go. So some of you, of course, their healthcare team is always the best source of information, of course, for you. However, um, some of you like to check somewhere credible to get answers to your questions. And we always recommend calling the National Cancer Institute. So there are two ways to reach them. One is by calling them at 1-800-422-6237. But the other way is to go to their website at www.cancer.gov. And there is a live chat feature where you can ask your question. And they're very, their information specialists are really quite amazing in terms of the information that they can provide for you. And it's also evidence-based and also has the stamp of the National Cancer Institute in terms of its really research-based. Um, so that's a really important resource for all of you to utilize. And we will be sending that information to all of you after the call as well um, with the evaluation that would follow the call. But we want to be sure that you do know, if you have an outstanding question right now, of course your healthcare team, but then I would definitely think of the National Cancer Institute. Also, if you're looking for a place to be treated, they do list all of the comprehensive the NC, National Cancer's designated cancer comprehensive centers, and so that might also be helpful to you, particularly if there's a center in your hometown or near where you live, or else they will recommend other centers that might be close by to you. Um, and um, most importantly, to conclude the program today, I would not want any of you to feel that you're alone. And I do want to mention to you right away that because of all of the natural disasters that we've had recently, all the hurricanes that have been happening throughout the country, um, that um, we do have set up at Cancer Care a hurricane fund. And I would simply ask you to call Cancer Care. It's a special fund for people who've been affected by the hurricane who have cancer. And the number is 1-800-813-4673. Or you can visit our website at www.cancercare.org. In addition to that, we offer lots of other types of financial assistance and practical help. And we have a very large staff of oncology social workers who are here to talk with you and provide support and counseling. And so that please do take advantage of those services. I think Ms. Ezra had reviewed them with you. You can talk with someone on the telephone, one of our oncology social workers online. You can participate in a telephone or an online support group. People find that very helpful. 
And um, you also can listen to other workshops that we have coming up, as well as uh, we have many publications in our, on our, listed on our website that you can order, both publications and fact sheets and wonderful materials, both in English and Spanish, that you might find very useful as well. And we do have a program coming up that I do want to mention to you on November 15th. It's titled Mind-Body Techniques to Cope with the Stresses of Cancer. It will be from 1.30 to 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time on November 15th, Wednesday, and you'll be getting information about that as well, as well as many other programs that we have coming up. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. We look forward to your feedback on our evaluation form. We very much... Uh, we really do depend on your feedback to tell us how we're doing and also any things that you recommend or that you particularly liked. And that allows us, as we're planning future programs, we're planning many of our programs both for the end of this year and also starting for 2018. So your feedback could not come at a better time. Again, thank you all for your participation day. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a good day.